1: to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future presented by SAP. The best run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham.
2: Welcome, 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 and welcome. This is one of our brand new series for 2017. We welcome you, and we are very excited. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to be talking about, and then we'll speak with the sponsor, who's one of our four esteemed panelists today and should tell us what to expect this year. The buzz? Well, I found a great quote. Back in 1886, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said the following, I have an affection for a great city. I feel safe in the neighborhood of man and enjoy the sweet success of the streets. We might say, dream on, Monsieur Longfellow. That was a long time ago and far away. Let's talk about what's happening today. We're going to project past today, 2017. Happy New Year, all. Up to 2050. What's going to happen? Well, the world is changing where we live. Over 70% of the world's population will live in cities, and over 85% in the developed world, we'll live in urban areas. This comes from a recent 2014 revision to a U.N. study on world urbanization prospects. So what's the impact of all this? What's going to happen when we all converge on what we call cities? Combined with the digital revolution, you all know what that is, this accelerated urbanization presents cities with challenges and opportunities. We might say the good, the bad, and the ugly, as they work to meet citizens' and businesses' needs in terms of what? Well, we need to get around, that's transportation, transportation. We need to wet our whistle, that's water, and all the things water is used for. Energy, got to power up our houses, our plants, our businesses, our cars, and safety, probably Primary. We aren't even talking about privacy today. What do the smart cities experts predict? Let's take the short look at 2017 and what will this new series cover? Let me tell you who's on the panel and then we'll get started. First up in a moment, we'll be welcoming Marlon Zelkowitz, the brainstorm person behind this series. She's a global director at SAP Future Cities and Internet of Things. Joining her will be Ruth B. Yesner Clark, global director of smart cities at IDC Government Insight. She's a specialist in She was just on the air with me an hour ago on the series 2017 debut, the 2017 season two debut of Future of Cars with Game Changers, Brave Lady, two shows in one morning, just like me. Joining us is a new panelist, Jennifer Bellicent, PhD. She's a principal analyst at Forrester Research, welcoming her all the way from the French Alps and rounding out the panel. Another returning guest, Megan E. Cook, Program Director of the Center for Technology and Government at the University of Albany. Glad to have Megan back as well. So let's start out with a quote that Marla Zelkowitz sent me and then we will see what she has in mind for this series. This quote is from R. Buckminster Fuller, a renowned 20th century inventor and visionary born in Massachusetts in 1895, dedicated his life to making the world work for all of humanity. We'll stop with that and here's the quote. To change something Build a New Model That Makes the Existing Model Obsolete. Sounds very simple. Marlon, congratulations on your new series. How are you today?
3: Doing great, thank you. And thank you so much for this opportunity to join the series and have a series on smart cities because we think that smart cities of the future are engaging in so many different areas, whether it's changing transportation, looking at questions of data ownership, privacy and security, just, you know energy consumption, and cars and automobiles. It's, it's exciting times for cities. And we're going to be covering many of these topics, too, in this 10-part series. It starts today. Wonderful. And yeah. so we are starting with the topic of trends.
2: There you go. Smart so cities. let's talk about that. Your quote from Bucky Fuller, if I can use the familiar term for him or Mr. Fuller, to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. How does that apply to your view on future cities, smart cities? Well, I see that cities are starting to look at different ways of doing things,
3: and some of them are starting to say, hey, you know, uh, what what businesses are we in? Traditionally, you know, cities have provided many, many different services. Now they're looking and saying, hey, maybe we should uh, work with more with the private sector and form partnerships to introduce them, also looking at who owns what in the city. And I think historically there's been a lot of usage of data by many different vendors and different companies and, and organizations in a city. Cities are starting to think, well, maybe, maybe we should monetize some of that. Maybe that's an asset for us. So I think those are some of the potential areas for disruption. I'm sure there are many more, and our panelists will be sharing them today, and I'm looking
2: forward to hearing that. Thank you very much, Marlin. pleasure to be working with you. And let's bring on our next panelist. She is Ruth Ruth B. Yesner-Clark at IDC Government Insights. And Ruth B. has sent me a quote, a very interesting quote, five little words to pack a punch, from Saul Alinsky. He was Saul David Alinsky. He is actually an American community organizer and writer, considered to be the founder of modern community organizing, and he is often noted for his 1971 book, Rules for radicals oh my goodness Uh, actually conservative author William F Buckley said in 1966 that Alinsky was quote very close to being an organizational genius what an accolade so here's the quote packs a punch five little words last guys don't finish nice Ruth B Yester Clark welcome back it's been a long time we spoke an hour ago how are you
4: I'm great Bonnie thank you um so I really like this quote for a couple reasons um so there's a little bit of layering here in, into this one. One um, is really about the author himself. So I thought it was really interesting to have a quote from somebody who really redefined community organizing, and he focused on trouble spots in urban environments and really trying to improve the plight of a lot of marginalized people. And he's really considered the founder, as you said, of, of modern community, community organizing. So. I think in in the context of smart cities, he was an interesting choice because this really is about um, a community, a really complicated community, a complicated ecosystem, and how we work with that ecosystem to do the things we want to do using the technologies and the data that we have. So that's one reason why I thought it was interesting because it's kind of all about the ecosystem of smart cities not just the physical and digital ecosystem, but really the ecosystem of players, you know, the politics, the private, the community leaders. So I also noted that William F. Buckley called him an organizational genius, and I think um, that's sort of what you need in smart cities for them to be successful. Um, So that was one part of picking this quote, and then the other part was really the message in the words, last guys don't finish nice, which I think is really saying here for cities specifically, you know, it's not going to serve a city well to be last in thinking about the concept of smart cities. It's not really the time to wait. It's the time is really now um, to think about emerging technologies and the data and the connected world we live in. And other cities are doing it and there is a competitive environment. And so really, you know, you're not going to serve your community well by not thinking about what we're going to talk about today in, in, in this radio show.
2: Thank you very much, Ruth B, and a pleasure to speak with you again today. Brave soul you are, and now you and I are both on an hour apart. We appreciate each other. So thank you again. And now calling in all the way from the French Alps. We're so delighted to have her. It's a newcomer to Game Changers Radio, Jennifer Bellisent, B-E-L-I-S-S-E-N-T, PhD, if you're looking her up, from Forrester Research. And Jennifer has sent an interesting quote by Sherlock Holmes. who was written and conceived of by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan and Doyle, with lots of letters after his name, lived from 1859 to 1930, a Scottish writer and physician, most noted for creating the fictional detective Sherlock Holmes and writing stories considered milestones in the field of crime fiction. I have a little bit of of, uh, trivia for you, Jennifer, you might not know. Doyle's attitude toward his character Holmes was very ambivalent. In November 1891, Doyle wrote to his mother, I think of slaying Holmes and winding him up for good and all. He takes my mind from better things. His mother replied, you won't, you can't, you mustn't. In an attempt to deflect the publisher's demands for more Sherlock Holmes stories, Conan Doyle raised his price to discourage them from buying the stories, but they were so in love with Sherlock, they kept paying more and more and more. So, as a result, he became one of the best paid authors of his time. I don't know if you knew that, but here's the quote you selected Data, data, data. I can't make bricks without clay. Jennifer Bellissant, welcome to Game Changers. How are you?
5: Thanks, Bonnie. I'm doing great. And, you know, just as uh, we couldn't make bricks without clay, cities can't make, you know, we can't make cities smart without data. Um, but but I really wanted to also focus on what kind of data. You know, we often hear so much about um, Internet of Things and sensors and connected everything, lights and cars and water and streets and parking and but I, I really also wanted to highlight that there's a, a wealth of data beyond some of those things within a city, and in part from the citizens themselves. And so it's, it's not just uh, those things that are providing data. It, it's the people that are also the core of the city, the constituents, uh, the businesses in the city that are also providing data that the cities themselves can use to improve the, the services uh, that they're providing back. Um, But it's also not just, you know, it's not just the data, it's how we use the data. Um, And there was another quote that I really liked. It was a Thomas Edison quote where he said, Mm -hmm. the value of an idea lies in, in the using of it. Um, you know and and similarly you know we can have all the data in the world but if it's stuck in a report and getting dusty on a shelf it's not really delivering any value um, and that idea of data plus use equaling value is something that's been reiterated within the smart city space and i think one of the trends that we're going to see going forward particularly you know this year and and beyond is that cities are, are going to really put an effort into improving what I call their data maturity, in enabling um, the constituents across the city, the stakeholders, to use that data uh, to use that data to deliver better outcomes, you know, better service delivery, more efficient operations, a better customer experience all over, all, all, you know, all, across the board. They're going to really think about how they they use the data, also how they share the data, um, and potentially how they monetize the data. And, and so, I, I I really like the quote about not making bricks without not being able to make bricks without clay, because I think you can't make smart cities without data. And, hmm. and you can't derive value from the data until you actually use it.
2: Thank you very much. Very interesting. Yes, yeah, so we're going to be talking a lot more about that with you later. Jennifer, thank you and welcome again. Where in the Alps are you? Can you give us, I don't, I'm i not looking for the Google Maps version, but can you give us an idea where, where, what country, where? I,
5: I live in the Chamonix Valley in France, okay. uh, right on the border between, you know, with, with Italy and with Switzerland. I'm kind of in the corner up there in the mountains.
2: Sounds like neutrality to me. Welcome. Appreciate that. (laughs) No comments. And now rounding out our panel is Megan E. Cook, Program Director, Center for Technology and Government, University of Albany. She was on with us at least a year ago. Delighted to welcome her back. And Megan has collected a quote from H. Jackson Brown, Jr., who is an American author best known for his inspirational book, Life's Little Instruction Book, which was a New York Times bestseller from 1991 to 94, and its sequel, Life's Little Instruction Book Volume 2 also made the bestseller list in 1993. Sounds like an overlap there. And here is a delightful quote she selected from H. Jackson Brown, Jr. Opportunity dances with those who are already on the dance floor. Megan Cook, Happy New Year. How are you?
6: I'm great. How are you?
2: I'm fine. Thank you so much for joining us. How's life in Albany? Is it cold
6: up there? Oh, it is. It's not the Alps. It's not as beautiful, but it certainly is cold.
2: (laughs) <laughs> nice to have you on so talk to me this quote are you a fan of life's little instruction book and how did you well, find this you quote know,
6: it's, it's one of those books that i believe people walk through the bookstore and they pick it up and they look through it and they they chuckle at some things and they ponder some ideas um it's, it's not a book that you know we we use all the time but it's certainly one of those books you give as gifts and so when i saw this quote it really resonated with the fact of how cities are looking to, to implement smart city technologies and really change the quality of life they bring to their citizens. And what we're learning is that cities who take a leap, try something small, really other opportunities open up. And one of the things that's really important is the balancing act between this planning long term strategic thinking and this fast lean innovation. And it's this balancing act between the two where we always find the cities who are, are really going to be successful understand that there's value in both. And so when I was when I was thinking about it I thought, yes, to to leverage what's ahead of a city, you've really got to be out there. You've got to be thinking about what changes your citizens want to see made because more opportunity will be out there as you're making this change, as you're inviting um, new dialogue from different types of groups. And so really, it's really at that balancing point between thinking about the areas of stewardship and procurement and understanding what it means um, to have smart cities technologies and really innovating and trying things, starting um, with You know, small cities are trying with smart streetlights, just doing uh, a neighborhood, one small area, but really thinking about what are the stewardship implications of that? How does that change the quality of life for this community? So they're innovating, yet they're taking that information and they're putting it into their long-term planning. So I really think that that's that's the future. Those that we see successful are going to really have figured out that balance.
2: Thank you very much, Balancing Act. Appreciate that. Very insightful, Megan, and thank you for joining us. And now we're going to do a little segment called What's in Your Cup Today? I'm going to ask everybody where you are. I think we know where at least two of you are. uh, And what time of the day or evening is it? And what are you drinking that's fueling you to talk about our topic today, Smart Cities of the Future, Challenges and Great Expectations? Our sponsor of the series, Marlon Zelkowitz. Where are you calling from and what are you drinking? I'm in Washington,
3: D.C., where everybody's getting ready for the inauguration, so our city is transforming itself, Uh, a lot of security and other things. I'm drinking pamplemousse or grapefruit-flavored sparkling water today. I was uh, in a rush, and it was on my desk,
2: so uh, I'm enjoying a very interesting flavor. It's got a little zing to it. I like the idea of using pamplemousse. That's uh, that's French for grapefruit, right? I haven't heard that word in a gazillion years. Are you a francophile? Uh, actually, I'm. I am a. I guess I would
3: say I'm a europhile, but I'm an internationalist. I, I like all different things. Um, it, I think they just decided to call it Pamplemousse, or I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, Pamplemousse, whatever, Jennifer can correct us. Uh, I
2: was going to say, I, I thought it chosen, might be an honor of I, Jennifer. I think they
3: changed <laughs> it because grapefruit is is not as popular in this market, and so it sounds better in French.
2: It sounds tangy and zesty. It does sound better in French and mysterious. Thank you, Marlon. Ruth B. clark I know what you were drinking an hour ago, so tell me, are you refreshing that cup and tell our listeners on this show what's in your cup today, and where are you?
4: <laughs> I am calling from the Boston area, from our corporate offices in, in a suburb called Framingham, and mm-hmm. it's a, actually a beautiful, chilly, sunny winter day here, so it's, it's kind of nice to be in the office and see the sun and the snow. and. And, um, and I was drinking hot cocoa mixed with coffee, but mm-hmm. I have a, I have a um, what's those, uh, New Year's resolution, I almost forgot what they were called, to not drink mm-hmm. as much coffee, even though I never was a huge coffee drinker. So I have switched to water. I am just going pure, pure water for the rest of the day. So I'm, something I'm that we're all you. talking about with Smart Cities is an important resource. Yes,
2: that's right. That's one of our four main resources of Smart Cities. I I think I said drinking water, but water also to power whatever needs water as part of its own fuel. So thank you very much, Ruth B., again, for joining us. Jennifer Bellissa, we know you are in, uh, it's it's evening time or, or dinner time in the French Alps, so tell us what's in your cup today.
5: So it's about 6.20 my time, and it has been snowing all day long. We've probably had about 20 centimeters. It looks like it's going to continue. So I am drinking hot green tea with mango and lychee.
2: Ooh, what does that taste like? I know what mango tastes like, but lychee, what's the
5: flavor that that adds? Um... So the whole mix kind of tastes a little bit tropical, which might be a little incongruous with what it looks like outside today, but um, it's kind of a, a fruity green tea mix.
2: Okay, good to know, and I'm glad to talk to you. And Megan E. Cook, you are in cold country, and what are you drinking to keep warm, I assume?
4: Well, we're
6: in Albany, and I just want to say we're all preparing for the Governor's State of the State Address which will be held at our university at Albany. Ooh. So we're very excited about that. That will be taking place tomorrow. And um, I, I want to tell you what I was drinking because it's, it's more important than what I am drinking. So what I was drinking, I tried to drink the leftover eggnog that we had <gasps> at the office, and that didn't work so well because it is the <laughs> tent. So I am drinking ice water um, to try to get that taste out of my mouth.
2: <laughs> I, I, I lovingly eyed the cartons of eggnog in the supermarket over the holidays, Megan, and I resisted. But I did treat myself to a couple of containers of half and half. So when I make my Nespresso, very dark coffee, whether it's uh, full high test, as we call or decaf, I put a little bit of luxurious half and half in to give it a little more creamy texture. And that was my indulgence. So, uh, yeah, I think it, the, the time has come not to not yeah. to do the leftover eggnog. Yes, it's not a not as interesting as uh, leftover bubbly, which probably isn't quite as toxic. Uh, I'm drinking cool, clear water out of a cool, clear mug with a straw that's pink today. It's kind of an orangey pink because I'm hoping the sunshine lasts here. I'm on the north shore of Long Island in New York. We took about five inches of snow over the weekend, and the roads are clear now. Everybody's zipping up and down outside of my office, and I think we're expecting another snowfall this weekend. But all all they let me have are non-caffeinated beverages on radio show days. And as Ruth B. knows... Today's a doubleheader day, so just water for me. But I'm delighted to be here talking with the four of you on the ed, the uh, episode number one of a brand new series called Game Changing, Smart Cities of the Future Radio. We're going to have 10 episodes this year. We're going to be on Tuesdays live at noon Eastern, noon to 1 p.m. And our episode today to kick off this series is called Smart Cities of the Future, Challenges and Great Expectations. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We're going to Take about a ninety second break, maybe sixty seconds. I don't know. We're we'll have a packed house today and come back and talk about these great expectations with Marlon Zelkowitz at SAP, Ruth B. Yesner Clark at IDC, Jennifer Bellisant at Forrester, and Megan Cook at the Center for Technology and Government at the University of Albany. We'll be right back. Don't even think of touching that oh, you know the drill, Michael out.
1: The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly city and local government leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as increased citizen and business demands for digital services, a growing variety of digital devices and sensors, causing a data deluge, and increased volatility in politics and environment, coupled with constrained resources. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. you're listening to game-changing smart cities of the future presented by sap email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com and you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at twitter hashtag sap r-a-d-i-o now let's get back to game-changing smart cities of the future
2: Yes, indeed. And here we are, brand new series, episode number one out of ten. Stay tuned for the whole year. Collect the whole set, as we like to say. Marlon Zelkowitz, who is the brain stormer for this series. She was on a couple of shows with me last year and said, hey, I want my own series. We've got so much to talk about with smart cities. And indeed, you are correct, Marlon. So let's start this part of the show called The Roundtable with a topic from your list. Let's talk about the people behind smart cities. You say city leaders will continue to make their cities smart. And you put the word smart in quotes, which is interesting to me. Let me just read a little more. You say, we live in a rapidly changing world. Cities face environmental threats, political change, crime and, ooh, terrorism, population growth increases demand for transportation and housing. The trend will continue. The what continues, but the how may change. Very well put. Marlon, tell us more, please. Sure. Um, you know, city leaders have been
3: relying on many different sources of of income and of different sources, ways of trying to address and make their cities smarter, but they're also facing a lot of financial pressures. That's common in public sector. And so the question really comes to, you know they need to be accountable to their public, they need to be accountable to the citizens who vote them into office. How are they going to then be able to address the needs of the of their cities and of the businesses, of the citizens who and the people who all live and work in the city? So with or without the support at the national level, which is certainly some we've seen some changes in the United States. We had a lot of support, for example, from the Obama administration, may not be there. Um, in other places around the world, you see a lot of central government support. With or without that, the cities still need to figure out how they can improve their cities, whether it's addressing transportation challenges. We know there are a lot of those in many cities around the world, or whether it's affordable housing um, with all the people coming in, or whether it's public safety. You know, If you look at uh, cities around the world, I was just in Europe over the holidays, and I noticed that there's many, uh, many refugees and immigrants who have come into some of the European cities. So there's different challenges that different cities face. They need to figure out how they're going to Prioritize and determine what is the most important thing to do, and then they're going to do something about it. And whether they do that through their own resources, um, whether they look towards public-private partnerships, whether they look to monetize other unmonetized traditional assets, I think you're going to see cities continue to embark on journeys to make their cities better and more attractive and more interesting and, and deliver more for the people who live and work and, and populate them. So with that, I'll turn it back to you.
2: Yeah, thank you. And I have a quick question for you before I bring in Ruth B. and then Jennifer and then Megan on this one. Marlon, are we starting to see titles pop up in city administrations where somebody, I'm the director of Smart Cities or I'm the owner of the Smart City Initiative or I'm the uh, the director of Smart Cities for Parking Spaces. Are we starting to see that trickle into the actual titles of the people who were doing the how and the what?
3: Um, you're seeing some. In some cities, yes, absolutely. And in other cities, you have uh, you have committees or, you, or it rolls up to like a, a city deputy manager or an assistant mayor or something like that. So in some cities, yes. In other cities, no. Each city takes its own path towards getting smarter. What I do, what I will say is those cities that form a group, that reaches across all of the different organizations and touches various stakeholders citizens businesses and others they tend to take a longer time to get their plan together but then their plan has a lot of support from the ground up and it tends to be embraced and and it's more robust and and more likely to be implemented and successful
2: thank you very interesting ruth b yesner clark idc love to have your pov on this talk to me please
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I agree with a lot of what Marlon's saying. One of the things that we've looked at over time sort of as a model for success in developing a smart city um, is what we call this maturity scape, which is smart city maturity model. And within sort of these 19 essential best practices, leadership is actually one of them. And so um, I think we really do need to think about how a city is being led along their strategy and, as Marlon said, how the strategy is being developed because when we're talking about smart cities, we're talking about a complex undertaking, right? We're talking about investing in new types of technologies that carry some risk, thinking about innovative new services that that may be different for the different departments and bringing in a lot of different players who provide solutions. So because of that, really, this idea of a strong leadership that can bring people together, that can develop government structures that can help spur investment, um, I think it's absolutely essential. And sometimes this might be kicked off by a mayor who has some vision or some of these mm-hmm. issues on, on his or her agenda. But related to your question, a lot of times we're seeing now it's a more consistent department that's sort of been tasked with this responsibility. So it could be something called a city or state, sustainability head. It could be an innovation department. And these really are leading and supporting the various departments within the city with sort of their expertise around um, technology or innovation or ecosystem development. And I think that's really important for developing this kind of consistent strategy for the next five to ten years because this is really a long-term undertaking.
2: Thank you very much. Jennifer Bellison, talk to us. What do you see?
5: It, great. I wanted to touch on a couple of things. Um, you know, Ruthie mentioned that it. These are complex undertakings, and and I absolutely agree with that. I mean, the city has a purview that's really just enormous, um, and. Often you know you wonder how, how they wonder the city leaders wonder how, where do we even start and um, Marlon mentioned you know this the, the challenge of prioritization and at Forrester we talk we often talk about an outside in approach I mean that's and that's the same in government as it is in the commercial sector um, you know focusing on this idea of engaging your citizens like you'd engage your customers to really understand what their priorities are, what they need, what their challenges are, what they're struggling with, um, and where they'd like to see improvements in that in in the service delivery and their customer experience. So one of the first steps in understanding how to prioritize is and it's a really simple step, but it's often just ask. Um, and so we've seen some really interesting examples of, of where governments have gone out and engaged with their citizens to better understand where their pain points are, what are the, the processes and, and the services in which they re- they interact with the most, so the most frequently used services, and then the most painful services to interact with, and, you know, Looking at that matrix, identifying, you know, where are the ones that you want to start with first? Um, Some cities have said, we want to start with those most, you know, the most frequent and the most painful, you know, the ones that are up there in the top right quadrant. Others have said, um, you know, let's start with some low-hanging fruit and get, get the processes flowing. But, but Having a, a methodology for how to prioritize is really, it, it's very helpful for, for getting it all out in front of them and understanding kind of what, wh- wh- you know, where they are with it. Um, and then once you identify, you know, which initiative you want to start with, what is your priority, then then looking at... at um, the process of change through kind of a customer journey mapping exercise where you understand how is the government how, you know how are our citizens interacting with the government what are the pro- what are the steps in the process what is their journey in getting what they need and how can we improve that for them
2: thank you jennifer very interesting comments adding on to a great discussion here let's turn to our fourth panelist megan e cook megan talk to us what are your thoughts Megan Cook, do we
6: have you? Sorry, sorry. I like a lot of what Jennifer was talking about. Um, We do a lot of work in the area, what we call before the beginning, all the things that get at what problem are you trying to solve for who, what action do you want people to take based on a change that you've made. And so when when we're engaging with cities, and and mostly it's the smaller to medium-sized cities that we work with, we help them think through what those issues are and And have them look at the data they've already been collecting over the past how many years to say, "How can you inform that right now? What types of new ways to collect data would you need, and why? what change is that going to make for the for the citizens and for the uh, the city itself, which is a big partner it, it is it's they're a customer and a partner all at the same time, but one of the things that I heard early on is your question about the director? Is there someone being given mm-hmm. the title? And I think yeah. that's an important question because many times you have outside organizations, maybe nonprofit advocacy, you have elected uh, officials, you have CIOs, you have the legal team. And it really depends on, on who's, who's the champion, who's leading the charge. If the CIO is leading the charge, um, they're, they're looking at um, innovation, ways to change the city. Um, if you have the elected official, it may be more in response to the constituents. doesn't mean that one perspective um, isn't accounted for. It just means that's going to be the one heard first. We are dealing with some cities on the smaller side whose legal team is, is also playing a large role. And so there are a lot of considerations in uh, smarter city infrastructure. And so those voices may be heard a little bit louder. And so really, um, in our perspective, it's listening to all of those perspectives and helping them balance using the before-the-beginning methodology that we have, really balancing all of these stakeholders that come to the table and helping them pick a place to start. One of the things that CTG did was look at all industry, government, and nonprofit um definitions of a smarter city. And we put it into um, a a research project and then published in that just a diagram that helps government leaders say, yes, I understand that smarter cities could be all of these things, but I want to just focus on municipal Wi-Fi or broadband right now. We're another city that has said, we just want to focus on ecological sustainability. Now, we know the two are tied together, but it really gives us the language by which to talk to each person, each group that comes to the table in this understanding of what we want to do, why we want to do it, so that others can take action.
2: Thank you very much. Great conversation. Uh, Marlon, I'm going to give you just a couple seconds to wrap this one up, unless you want to pass the baton, and then I'll go to some comments from Ruth B. Esner-Clark. What's your wish?
3: No, I think that they. I think our speakers, our panelists, have done a great job summarizing. You know, it's uh, who's in charge has a, puts a big stamp on where the projects in the smart city may go. As as Meg said, as Jennifer pointed out, there's really a, a whole range of different kinds of projects to engage in, and cities need to be thinking about what to do. And as as Ruth B. pointed out, the. Smart city, maturity, leadership is just one element of many in becoming a smart city. So great points and
2: I think this gets us gets us really off to the races on smart cities. There you go. Thank you very much. And now let's go to Ruth B. Esner-Clark. Ruth B., I'm looking at your notes here. Let's back this out a little bit away from country and let's Look at the bigger picture, the broad brush. You say country digitization is a key success factor. By 2019, which is what, two years away from now, countries with 50% of their mid sized to large cities in the repeatable stage or higher of smart city maturity will be more successful in country digitization efforts. Which comes first, the country or the city? Why don't you take us through this, Ruth B? <laughs>
4: That's a great question, which comes first, the country or the city. <laughs> I think what I was trying to get at here, and, and this is worded that way because it's one of our predictions that we did for Smart City 2017, so it has kind of an odd structure in terms of being, being a prediction. But one of the things that we've really noticed over the past, I don't know, 18 months was um, Smart Cities being sort of elevated to a regional or national government level um, discussion, so it sort of bubbled up and started, even though we've seen a lot of, of work from, you know, maybe China and also the European Commission. You know, we started to see these other national um, governments. So we've done work with, for example, Saudi Arabia, who has a cross-city um, strategy, Kazakhstan, the UK future cities catapult, the White House finally jumped in. Um, in India, it's at the state level um, for these projects. So... I think what we were saying is we also look at how countries are trying to digitize themselves, move to a digital economy, provide that connectivity across vast regions, and really bring everyone sort of into this emerging, emerging world. And um, cities are really key to that. And so we see these national governments focusing on these economic centers with, within the context of smart cities. And um, taking these mid to large sites are key for them and using sort of a national strategy almost around cities to kind of elevate the entire country with some of their other um, goals that they have around this digital economy.
2: Thank you. Let's get Jennifer Bellison and Forrester to chime in on this. Country, city—who comes first? The chicken or the egg? Who crossed the road first?
5: <laughs> well, I, you know, we we haven't solved that that problem. You know, we haven't answered that question about the chicken and the egg, and so I'm not sure we're <laughs> going to answer the question about the country versus the city. But I think it's, you know, I agree with Ruth B that we've seen an elevation um, and uh, an, a, a really an acknowledgement of the importance. Of um, of making our cities more successful, making our cities more efficient at the national level, um, and, and she mentioned a couple of, of places where there's been significant investment. I, I think you know it's interesting to see these country digitization efforts and strategies. It's also perhaps um, you know somewhat surprising that the U.S. is one of the only countries that doesn't have a national you know a national broadband plan or a national a country digitization strategy. Um, but those 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 initiatives provide a foundation for for a number of the you know for for the cities, and I. I don't think one comes before the other, but they act together um, to, to create that, the, this movement that we're seeing. Um, so I, I, I think that we're, we're going to continue to see them working in, in, in step, hopefully, um, to see the, the evolution of smart cities, the acknowledgement of, of the need for um, the, these types of transformation at the city level, that acknowledgement at the national level as well.
2: Thank you. Megan Cook, I think you're up next. What do you think?
5: Well, I agree with
6: everything that's that's been said so far. One of the things that it's hard to do at a country level is to understand the diversity that lies within the cities uh, based uh, in capabilities and resources. and And where we've seen successes is when usually funding so it's a direction it's an initiative mm-hmm. that comes forward and funding associated with it but it really is able to be modified based on the context of the city because not one size fits all and we all know that but many times when you're at a country level and you're and you're setting forth a plan that is tied with funding it requires everyone to to implement in the same way and that's not what makes cities successful and and so it's it's those plans that can recognize that difference, the difference in the diversity, in the people, in the goals, um, in the capabilities and the resources of the community and the government that allows them to be successful.
2: Thank you. Let's circle around to Marlon. Marlon Zalkowitz, what do you think?
6: I,
3: I think we're in a chorus of agreement here among our panelists. I do think I think digitization is critical and connectivity is critical for smart cities. I think it's you'll see cities that do have the infrastructure in place move able to move faster on that front and as as we've has been pointed out those which do not are going to have to figure out ways to address that gap. So It's exciting um, to think about about how these cities are going to transform, and I think different cities of different sizes and different kinds of density and location will have different uh, different approaches. reminds me just to Mm reminds me about one city in particular that wanted to digitize, and they didn't have the infrastructure in place, and they found a, a clever way, a creative way to do this, where they monetized their data effectively through a third party that was willing to help them put in place that infrastructure. To make their city smart in the central part of the city. So, again, disruptive, the way you go, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's certainly clever and it's one way of doing things in the absence of a national strategy to put in place a broadband, for example.
2: Very interesting, perhaps an inspiration and maybe a new role model. Interesting, thank you. Uh, Ruth B., I'll give you a moment just to wrap this one up. We had some interesting comments around the table. What are your thoughts?
4: Yeah, you know, it's, it's horrible that we're all so violently agreeing with each other. Um, <laughs> Isn't it I wish terrible? I could say something really controversial right now. But, <laughs> but I, did, I did just want to pick up on all, one, one point that Megan was making out of all the good points there, um, which reminded me of actually something we did in our predictions last year, which was really talking about, you know, in this question of country versus city, you know, and the point about funding and individuality within cities. So a lot of the national and regional-level governments around the world are huge funders, right, for the cities. Um, And they, in that way, set the agenda because they will set an RFP to fund specific technologies, to request for certain types of strategy for funding. And so one of the things that I think is very important is for the cities to be engaged in that conversation because you don't want that agenda to be set for you all the time through Mm -hmm. RFPs that come out of big national um, governments if that's not the way that you're going. So I think that's one sort of advice to municipalities in terms of engagement. And then just the final wrap up comment was really to just mention that the World Bank really discusses this country level digital agenda in really interesting ways talking about digital and analog enablers which would be like data analytics and digital IDs and cybersecurity and then digital solutions which would be smart cities, digital government, digital agriculture. And then, most interestingly, digital dividends, which would be the economic growth, the better services, the social inclusion. So, I just love that context of thinking about smart cities in the context of a of a national agenda um, in terms of the way that the World Bank has sort of set it out.
5: Thank, thank you. I heard somebody who wants to comment. I heard a comment. Yeah, Bonnie. I this is Jennifer. I kind of wanted mm-hmm. to jump in and just yeah, react please. to something that Ruth B. said, and um, you know, we're. we're about the funders and setting the agenda and you know with so much funding from sources external to the cities you know, one of the things that i've i've that has troubled me for example in the eu there's a lot of funding that goes into Research and academic projects and pilot projects throughout the cities and one of one of the aspects that I find troubling and it weighs on me is you know is that funding crowding out an or a more organic initiative on the city's part and how is that funding um, or those projects that are funded by these external um, bodies, how are they going to become sustainable? That money won't be around forever, and so I think that there's a challenge in balancing the the drive um, and the you know the umph that that external funding provides with this question of sustainability and and how these projects are going to continue in the long term. And I, I think that there's a, a challenge there. I absolutely agree with Ruthie that you know you ha- you, you have to take a step back and say do we want these external funders to set our agenda and just you know and and by the same token you also you know are are do you want to rely on them Um, and how do you make that transition from an externally funded pilot into uh, a long-term sustainable project within the city
2: Thank you, Jennifer. Very good comments, and that leads me into something from your notes. I want to make sure we cover one more topic from you and one from Megan Cook before we get to our predictions round, which is starting in six minutes. So let's see if we can to quick do almost a lightning round here. Jennifer Belliscent, you say, most cities are not ready to be smart. Back when we first started talking about smart cities, many vendors were evangelizing, let's embed sensors in everything. And you say, for many cities, that was putting the cart before, what did I say before, who crossed the? The, the the who crossed the egg first or the the road first the chicken of the egg and whether comes the digitization of the country to the city you say many cities that was putting the cart before the horse or getting the horse before you'd built the stable cities didn't have the capability or the culture to collect store manage secure or use the data that was going to be generated so let's have a comment from you a quick one and then we'll go around the table very fast and we'll pick up a topic from uh from Megan go ahead Jennifer
5: so one of the so yes, I, you know, I, there was often this push to to develop more data to generate more data. and when you took a step back you, and looked at some of the existing systems within the within the cities, some of the IT systems within the cities, the cities themselves didn't have the foundation on which to build some of those the, 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 the new smarts. Um, And we've spent a lot of time talking to cities about their data maturity and where they are in terms of their their ability to use the data. We mentioned earlier that it was data plus use that actually drives the value. But when we asked government decision makers about how able they were to access the data that they needed – only 38% said that they were able to do that in a timely manner. And that compares with 63% in the private sector. So there's a huge data maturity gap, as we say. You know, we say mind the gap. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, similarly, we had another question where we asked, how able are you to apply the insights to operational processes and and actions in a timely manner? And we found that within government, only 27, or within cities specifically, only 27% said that they were able to apply the insights to actually change operational processes compared to 59% in the private sector. So, again, you're, you're seeing that gap in terms of being able to access the data, being able to turn that data into insights, and actually being able to use that data. Um, and so that's what I mean by cities, not necessarily being ready to be smart. We, um, you know, 10 years ago when we first started to talk about smart cities, we took a step back from all of the sensor-enabled infrastructure and really started to look at, well, do cities have the foundation they need? Are they sharing services across the city? So rationalizing some of the technologies that they already have, it doesn't make sense for every department in the city to have a different asset management application. Why not have one and configure it so that you can manage park benches or fire trucks or basketball hoops Using that same infrastructure and then once you do that and start sharing those kinds of applications across the different city departments, then you find, wow, we have data that's in the, in common elements, in common formats, and we can more easily share the data across those, those city departments. So that's just one example of ways in which you can create a better foundation within the city you, with, with what you already have before you start to to extend the, this idea of becoming smart to, um, to, you know, making making objects throughout the city more intelligent. So that's what I meant by cities weren't necessarily ready to be smart. It was important to take a step back, look at the foundations, and build a really fertile foundation on which to to grow some of those smart city initiatives.
2: Thank you, Jennifer, and I want to quickly move to a topic, Uh, I think it's an add-on, actually, to what you said from Megan Cook's list. Megan says, smart cities is or are in the eye of the beholder. The smarter movement has been underway in cities and other local governments for years. Larger cities are trailblazing the use of information and technology to improve quality of life, create safer communities, and cut costs. But you say one of the most important findings from work that you've done at the Center for Technology and Government at the University of Albany, SUNY, is that each city or community must themselves decide what does it mean for them to be smarter. What matters most to citizens is context-specific. I can give you about two minutes to expand as for us, Megan, please, and then we must go to our predictions. So,
6: Megan? Sure. So, um, I think that we've already talked a lot about this, that it's... It's up to the dis- city to decide to understand what the need is there but what I, I like about small to medium-sized cities is that they're going they're going to jump on anyway they're whether they have figured it out or not they have Come together and they said, We're going to become smarter. We're going to do some work in figuring out what that is. And although I agree with Jennifer that many of them have not built their data maturity, their infrastructure, they're going to move into the smart city arena anyway. And so CTG likes to work with them to help them build that capability because they are going to do it. And many times we've heard them say, well, yes, we may not have the technical platform, the maturity to use the data, but an investment in this smarter infrastructure technology will allow us to have mm-hmm. the funding to build those capabilities. And so we're really trying to help them to take a step back and say, we understand you're going to jump, and and you want to jump, and you believe that this is the best uh, investment it's going to bring the most public value to your citizens, but let's think about it as you go and understand how we can build those capabilities the technical the management the organizational as you're moving along in this investment process because they're not going to stop just because they don't have those capabilities already in place they're reading the newspaper they're seeing the larger cities. Uh, have all of this information and they want this information from the fire departments that want to use tablets and they want to be able to see building permits as they're on the way to the fire to other cities that are looking at their critical infrastructure and can isolate the non-revenue water that they have flowing through their pipes. Smaller to medium-sized cities want to do this. They're going to go into the investment. It's helping them understand how they build the capability, both the technical, the management, Um, the the data-informed ways of thinking in order to get there.
2: Thank you, and your audio is back to normal. I appreciate it. Sorry for that. Oops, and didn't mean to interrupt you in the eggnog. Uh, let's do a quick round. I got about, oh, I have about 45 seconds for each of you to give us your predictions. So our topic, again, is smart cities of the future, challenges, and great expectations. I actually have a minute for each of you. Whoa, according to Michael. He's the official timekeeper. So Marlon, predict either the future of this topic or what's going to happen in the next episode of your series. Go ahead. Well, I think I'm going to put a plug in for the next episode of the series where we'll be talking about public-private
3: partnerships. That's an important path for many cities and particularly those that don't have the funding sources to get their smart city projects off the ground. So that's my, my little plug for next session in three weeks and hope that people will join us.
2: Wonderful. I know they will. Very, very compelling topic. So, Ruth B. Yesner-Clark, what's your prediction? And, uh, yeah, what do, you, what do you see coming down the pike for city versus country digitization, for the office of whoever is in charge of smart cities? Any comments from any of you on how a, p- a political year might lead people to say, yeah, we're going to make our city really smart and attract more attention and more funding and more national stage? Is that anything to do with it? Ruth B., what do you see?
4: Well, it's interesting because my prediction really ties back to what Marlon was plugging for her next episode, which is about public-private partnerships, and Mm -hmm. sort of along the line that we've been talking about, which is funding. So when we think about the foundations and, you know, picking cities, as as Megan said, you know, whatever choice they want to pick in terms of what makes them a smart city, or around what Jennifer was saying, around how to use the data, and, you know, what kind of data maturity they have... Really, I think the big issue is um, around how people are funding these efforts. And part of it is because there have been some small pilots that have happened, and the issue is really how these things scale. And so a lot of the effectiveness of these initiatives, for example, when you think about smart connected lighting or or smart parking, really you don't realize their full benefits if you just do them in one neighborhood. They need to be pan-city or even regional to some degree. So what's going to be the business case? and how, we are, how are these projects going to be sustained over time, I think are going to be really one of the key topics that's happening this year as cities really try to move into that broader implementation phase. Whether they're ready or not, they're going to do it, and I think they need to figure out how they're going to pay for it.
2: Thank you very much, Jennifer Bellicent. I do have 45 seconds
5: for you. Give me your predictions, please. Okay. Well, actually, I think you know my predictions are very in line with 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 the – both Marlins and Ruth bees. I mean, I think that very going forward, um, the business enablers are going to be as important as any of the the technology enablers have been in the past, if not more so. We're going to see cities move from from pilot to more sustainable projects, um, and the public private partnerships that we're going to see, and the new creative business models are going to um, to to really take hold. It, Around data sharing as well, we're going to continue to see you know in this past year we've seen a number of really interesting data sharing agreements, whether it's between ways and some of their connected cities or new announcement from Uber in terms of creating a a new platform to help cities leverage some of the data that they're providing. So public-private partnerships, data sharing and and new business models are going to be really the way of the future.
2: Terrific. That's what we're looking for and let's round this out with Megan E Cook. Megan, Predictions, 45 seconds, go.
6: Well, as as populations are moving to the urban areas, we all know this, I believe they're going to move to the small to medium-sized cities, and, and some of the parameters that people use is populations. So I think we're talking, you know, the medium cities above 250,000, below a couple of million. I think we're going to hear the great stories and and the success stories are going to be from that size, and also the smaller cities, because The larger cities, they're very expensive to move into. I think we're going to see the influx into this size city. You know, I love Kansas City. They've done some great things there. They're just at about 500,000, so they're thinking like a larger city, but they have to operate as a smaller city. And so they've done some great things in the use of data. So I think it's those types of cities we're going to be talking about next year, because they've made great strides. And I know I'm running out of time, but I think the larger cities, it's going to be a conversation about risk management. We're going to talk less about cybersecurity as an Mm -hmm. IT security, but rather a larger risk management for the larger cities that have already invested in their critical infrastructure.
2: Thank you, Megan, right on time. Thank you, Marlon Zelkowitz, for being my sponsor of a new series. We also have four new series you'll all be hearing soon here on the Business Channel with Game Changers Radio. Ruth B. Yesner clark you can go take a break. Now you did great two shows in four hours. You're a champ. Jennifer Bellison, enjoy your evening in the French Alps. Megan E. Cook, hope you'll come back again. All of you, shout out to Michael and the Business Channel team for getting us on the air and keeping us there. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. No matter how smart your city is or it's going to be, the rules are the The same. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye bye.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.